This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today I'm joined by Arjun Morthy, who is the CEO and founder of The Factual, a company that finds and delivers the most credible stories on the most important news topics using a transparent, unbiased machine learning engine. The Factual aims to address the increasing polarization of society, driven in large part by social media, by surfacing the most credible stories across the political spectrum and delivering them via a daily email, newsletter, app, and website. Arjun has also always been passionate about news and was editor-in-chief of the Stanford Reporter. He has been interviewed by the Wall Street Journal and the Next Web, is featured in the award-winning book Savvy, Navigating Fakeness, and writes regularly about the news industry and startups. He's an active speaker in community forums in the Bay Area as well. Prior to founding The Factual, Arjun was vice president of business development at HubSpot, the industry leader in inbound marketing. Arjun has a computer engineering degree from the University of Waterloo and an MBA from Stanford University. Anyway, Arjun, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Jonathan. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's fantastic to have you uh, on the show. And I just have to say that the work that you're doing is, is phenomenal. I mean, I think it's great. And that in today's environment where people are having a hard time discerning fact from fiction, who to listen to, that the factual is a fantastic platform where people can go and get unbiased news. Thank you. Yeah, it's been uh, quite the journey. I think we're in early innings, maybe the first or second inning at best. Uh, It's a long road to go, but it's a very fulfilling journey. Um, It's great seeing people find value in what we've built. So that's, uh, that's the best part of the job. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm super curious to kind of hear the origin story. So I know that you have a background in media. You were the editor-in-chief at Stanford. So you have, you, know, you have experience with news, but why did you decide that, hey, I, I need to start the factual? This is something that's important. Uh, you know, obviously something you're passionate about, something society very uh, needs very badly. Yeah, you know, um, so I'll give you the glib answer, then I'll give you the real answer. The glib okay. answer is that, you know, anyone that starts a startup, um, especially if you have alternative career options like I do, uh, you're a little bit stupid and a little arrogant. Um, it's the truth. Like, it's a, it's a very difficult path to take, and you have to have some sort of crazy in you to do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the, the real answer is, uh, you know, I, I've always been in love with the news. My first job, believe it or not, was a paper boy uh, when I was 12. And I know it sounds really corny, but I think I fell in love with news like there. I used to deliver the news every day and I thought it was cool. And I'd sit and read the newspaper even when I was 12. Um, I believe that news when it's done well offers great value to society. It can help communities be informed, bring people together, help them have good conversations, make good decisions about uh, the people that represent them in office or or beyond that. and so when I saw that news was not being done well right around 2016, it was actually before the election of Donald Trump. Um, when I saw that the news wasn't being done well, I thought, wow, this is really uh, terrible. This is not a good way that this is going for society. And uh, I'd been thinking about starting my own company. I'd been you know, doing other startups for quite a few years. I'd probably been working for about 15 years at that point. And I thought, well, um, this is an idea that I'm really passionate about. I could see myself sinking a decade or more of my professional life to solve this problem. That's a good sort of time horizon to think if you're going to do this. Um, I met my co-founder and he was really passionate about uh, this uh, effort as well. And, you know, we're a couple of engineers and we were really naive and we thought, oh, you know, we could solve this. We'll throw some algorithms at it, some computer science stuff. We'll have this done. No problem. Six months. 
Um, and it's taken a heck of a lot longer. It's taken a long time to figure product market fit out. But um, yeah, the, the, the answer is, you know, I, I love the, the, the news. I think this is a problem worth solving. It'll take a long time to solve and I'm committed to it. Uh, it's the first time I've done a job that my mom even understands what the heck I do, which is kind of cool. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, if you're gonna do something, you know, if you're gonna spend a decade in it, you probably should love it. Otherwise it's gonna be really hard. Yeah, I, I definitely think that if you're going to spend one eighth of the average lifespan yeah. um, towards, you know, putting putting your time and effort towards solving a problem, that it is something that you're you're passionate about. Otherwise, it's going to be a, a very long slog. However, I you know I think it's interesting you're saying that you have to be a little bit crazy, you have to be a little bit arrogant in order to go out and do something like that. And that is interesting, right? Because at some point you have to think that you're smarter than everybody else, I suppose, <laughs> to a degree, okay. right? I mean, you have to have, you have to have this, uh, be kind of overwhelmed with optimism that you can go out and do this and you kind of take this leap of faith and you just go ahead and do it. And that's really interesting too, that you said that it's taken a lot longer than you anticipated. I think it always works out like that. Yeah, I think that's true. And you know, it's, it's funny if you, if you know how difficult the startup path is, I think you wouldn't do it. So that's where the naivety comes in that you think, ah, oh, you know, I can do this. And then there's some arrogance in there. And then when you get in, you're like, oh my God, this is much harder. And you get your, your butt kicked every day. And it's, uh, it's difficult until you finally have a product that people want. And then you figure out the economics of that product to be a viable company. Um, those are very discrete and different steps. And then the growth has to be there. So, you know, there's a lot of things that have to come into uh, place to build uh, a powerful or a useful company that is growing. And uh, I think we've got, we've got some promise, but uh, still lots to prove still. Well, that's great. I mean, and all you can do is keep working at it, right? And hopefully, yeah. hopefully the public will eventually see the value, I'm sure that they already see the value. It's just kind of growing that and scaling it up and making sure that, you know, you reach that break even point where the, you know, the expenses are balanced out by the, uh, by the revenue coming in and all of that. So, but yeah, that's awesome. And definitely the mission of the company. So I'm assuming it's something along the lines of just bringing unbiased news, but what is, what is the, do you have like a one or two uh, sentence mission for the factual? Yeah, I think uh, that's exactly it. Help people find uh, credible news on topics of importance. That's it. Okay. Um, and encapsulated in that are two very big parts. The first is finding credible news, of course, because right now that's people's worry. They think a lot of the news they come across is not credible. It's particularly biased or slanted some way. But also on, on trending topics or topics of importance, because I think news has become a 24 by 7 obsession. And it should not be. There's not that much interesting stuff that's going on. And frankly, a lot of it isn't that relevant or useful for everyone to know. But some of it is. And that's what we were trying to uh, highlight is what is the news that's really useful for me to know? What's important for me to know? And then leave the rest of it aside. So it's those two things. I think if you do that, then our vision is to have a well-informed society that can make better decisions together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more on the importance of society having access to the facts, right? I mean, right. having access to unbiased information so that way that they can make the best decisions for themselves possible. And I know, particularly for me, one of the things that I observed and why I ended up starting intelligent speculation is the disconnect between reality with uh, some people and the fact that we just cannot seem to agree on what the facts are. And it shouldn't be like that. I, I don't know how you can have a stable society when you have members who can't agree on reality, essentially. Yeah. So. I think the, the interesting thing about the facts is, you know, some people throw it around like facts are incontrovertible and, and like they just stand on their own. You know, they're, they're not partisan. But a lot of times facts need context to understand you need to look at trends and patterns and understand samples and all kinds of things that 
up until very recently were the kinds of things that only statisticians talked about. But I think COVID actually, uh, if there's some upside to COVID, uh, which is quite an unfortunate situation for all of us, but one upside is I think more people are learning that you have to learn how to ask questions about data. Like you see a death rate, what is that? What's the sample? Where is that? What time period? What happened before? What's comparable with it? What are other cities or provinces or countries that uh, compare and how are they doing? And how has that changed when this happened or the weather changed? Or like all these kinds of questions to really start to get it versus just saying, you know, the facts are like, can't we just agree on, you know, the, the facts? Well, yeah, but you've got to provide sufficient context. And I think when you provide the context and you do it in a manner that's not trying to force people into a conclusion, then the vast majority of people actually come to the right conclusion. Um, I'm very optimistic in, in the ability of people to make good decisions if provided good information. Um, uh, you know, the, uh, an analogy that I use sometimes is, it's not a perfect analogy, but uh, you know, we have trial by jury. We take whatever, nine people uh, who are not lawyers or of the law profession, and we get them to sit and listen to arguments for and against a case and come out with uh, a decision, which is kind of baffling if you really take a step back. You're like, wait, these people know nothing about crime and punishment or all this, and they just listen to these people arguing for and against us, and they go off into a room and come up by a decision. We trust that. They can sentence people to life, these nine randos. And um, it clearly works most of the time. No one's saying it's perfect, but we think it's a pretty good system. So I think the, the things that we can draw from that are given a large enough sample of people, which is you know, more than one, uh, given all the evidence for and against a topic and given some quiet time to think about it, people tend to come out with pretty good conclusions actually. And that's what we in the news need to do is give people all of the facts and the context and a quiet space to think um, and then hopefully to collaborate with others over time, but uh, a way to actually like share information and then you'll come to a good decision. Most of you, not everyone, but most. Yeah, that's interesting uh, what you were saying about context when it comes to facts. And I, I categorically agree that context is really, really important. Uh, so for example, you know, when it comes to bias in the media, which is you know, ubiquitous these days, mm -hmm. The same fact with different news organizations can have a person leaving what they're seeing or what they just read with a different impression of what happened. That's right. So the lens through which you view these facts is really, really important. And uh, that the, so um, there's something in cognitive psych, it's like a, it's a cognitive bias called the, like the framing effect, which means that like, depending on how you look at something, it can mean different things. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, so that's really, really important when it comes to fret. Uh, excuse me, comes to facts because if you're not uh, properly framed, or let's say if you're not trying to unbias the background that the fact is presented on, then you're going to walk away with, a, I guess, a different impression. So that's that's really interesting that you said that. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, one of the, the problems with journalism is that um, historically a lot of it is, has been driven by advertising and advertising tends to encourage sensationalism and alarmist sort of headlines because that grabs eyeballs, that gets people to click and read and share. Um, and a lot of journalists actually, they're very good, they'll do a great job, but they don't get to write their own headlines. You know, that's often written by a, a different team and, and they know how to optimize the headlines to, to get clicks and views. Um, and so, you know, I think you know, talking about framing, uh, you can pose, boy, this is a, this is another one that I don't know if people do this, but, um, when you think about COVID, you'd say the death toll, uh, this is what the death toll is, is how many people have died today, yesterday, comparatively, whatever. Uh, you could also frame it as whatever 99% of people have recovered. Um, now that's not that seems just off the mark because you know that the death toll is so significant compared to any other disease or pandemic we've had in recent memory. So it makes sense to highlight the deaths, but you can understand how you could frame it that way. Like, wait, but most people will get it recovered. Like most, most people. 
why don't you say that for a headline? Why is that not the headline? Um, so I can understand when people complain about framing. It's a very legitimate argument, actually. And why the conclusion that we've come to is that no matter uh, how much a journalist tries to do the right thing and be very objective and present all the facts, there's some inherent bias that all of us carry. And just from the way the story is framed, just from the angles that we choose to report on, just the stories we choose to report on. So if you want to really understand an issue or a topic well, you must read more than one article. There's just no way around it. And then ideally you're reading a, a couple, two or three across the political spectrum, getting some different viewpoints. Um, and then the ones that are like really well researched, not the extremist crazy stuff, stuff that people have tried to really do a good job, report the facts, but they have different ways of framing things. So if you read a couple of those, you'll get closer to the unbiased truth. That's ultimately the factual makes that whole thing easier. We help you find those stories on each topic across political spectrum that are very credible, curate them, summarize them, put them into a daily email, an app, and off you go. Yeah, I with the reading a variety of sources, yeah, I I can't think of anything more important in today's uh, environment, in today's news environment, if you really, particularly when it comes to politics. Uh, I know that 2016 kind of really highlighted this whole thing for me. And, you know, the advent of fake news, weaponization of disinformation, uh, ubiquitous, ubiquitous uh, misinformation across social media platforms. And one of the things that I gravitated towards initially was something known as the media bias chart. It was mm -hmm. trying to help people to kind of balance their consumption because you would get people that would go way off the spectrum. Yeah. And it's like you're, you're living in a conspiracy theory hole at some point if you go too far either right or left. And like you're just living in an alternate dimension. So there, there's this range of bias within the media. And the media bias chart definitely highlighted that for me from a visual standpoint. And it was something that I could share with, uh, with like my Facebook friends or even on the Intelligence Speculation Facebook page saying, hey, you know, visually you can see where the bias is. Yep. And there is this what I call a, a, a range of reason where, okay, you know, you're going to have some sort of skew, whether it's going to be liberal or conservative, but if you skew too hard, either right or left, at some point, then you're just going to not be fed facts in a fair manner and you're, it's going to distort your worldview. Or you may not, or they might be telling stories at some point too. There's there are, depending on how, how hard you lean left or right, you're going to eventually end up in a world of fiction where you're not mm -hmm. in reality anymore. So I would tell people, try to stay in this range of reason or rationality where you're pulling sources that are credible across the political spectrum and they don't lean, lean too hard uh, right or left. So that's really interesting because you took that idea and essentially turned it into a business. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Into a so new a source, lot of the factual. You nailed it. I think a lot of people who have come to the factual have familiarity with that media bias chart. Um, and they use that as a guide, but it's a little cumbersome. You know, it's like, where's the chart? Oh, I've got to go look it up. I know mm -hmm. where it is. And now it's all baked into a, a simple tool. It's all online. Um, the one thing about that chart that I don't love is that, um, you know, the shape of it is sort of like the farther you get from the center, the worse it gets. Um, and I don't think that that's necessarily strictly correct. Uh, the, the assumption that we proceed under is that, like I said, all journalists have some bias and all publications have some sort of aggregate bias. And yeah. bias by itself is just, it's human. Like we have ways of looking at things because of that's the frame of reference we have from growing up, from whatever our teachings have been. And so I don't fault a, a publication for having a bias or a perceived bias. What I do think is it's unacceptable for them to present articles that are poorly researched, that don't provide a lot of justification for an argument put forth, um, or are inflammatory in a way as to enrage the audience rather than to inform the audience. If your goal, so let's say for example, you think um, stimulus payments are going to uh, inflate the debt of this country and you know collapse the government. That's fine, like you have that particular uh, viewpoint that that's a very finance centric viewpoint and you might put together a fantastic article saying look here's all the data here's the context here's how we're 
you know, way above as a percentage of GDP compared to World War II and blah, 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 and all this other stuff. And you're not trying to get people angry. You're just like, I really think that there's a problem with the debt. Another person might say, this is hogwash. Like you guys bring up this argument now, how come it doesn't come up when it goes to defense payments? And we got a whole bunch of people suffering. You should, you know, and, and that's a very left view of uh, the role of the government and what it should be doing. And you can put together a great argument for that. I think both are very useful and they could be on outlets like The Intercept, which is a very left-leaning publication historically, or uh, The American Spectator, which is a right-leaning publication. I don't think that just because they're on those publications, it immediately implies lack of merit. I think that's too coarse and you miss out on seeing viewpoints that might actually have merit. So that's the only, uh, my only sort of tweak on that chart is, I think it's good to know where you are on the bias spectrum in terms of how arguments might be framed, whether it's more of a conservative or, or a liberal framing. But to lump everyone into a publication into one grade seems uh, a bit coarse. And you can usually find great journalism in a lot of sources. In fact, you name a source, uh, you know, Breitbart is one that people like uh, left-leaning people oftentimes say there's, there's no merit in. And our grades have shown us that actually sometimes their writing's pretty good. In fact, there's a former Wall Street Journal guy who writes for them. Turns out his writing's still pretty good. He just does it at Breitbart now. And our grades show that. And so it, our, our grading methodology, which looks at individual articles and grades them for extent of research, how opinionated or unopinioned they are, the author's topical expertise, um, the site reputation, all factors in and it helps you find great writing in a lot of sources, not just the, the mainstream ones that people might know. No, that's really interesting that you mentioned uh, Breitbart, uh, because I know personally I've been pretty critical of it. A lot of my left-leaning family and friends have been critical of it. Uh, I've seen a lot of ridiculous articles from them, but you said that there's also some good writing to be found in there. Yeah. Do you think that the average person would have the kind of critical faculties, if you will, to still be able to follow Breitbart, even though perhaps they churn out a bunch of opinion pieces that are not based, uh, that don't have a lot of facts or things of that nature, but then they're able to like pick out the good ones. Because you said that, you know, obviously the algorithm for the factual, you know, is picking out some, you know, good pieces here and there mm -hmm. uh, when, uh, when it's able to identify those. But for the average person, do you think that they would be able to do that if they tried that themselves? Or that it would be almost beneficial to perhaps maybe not even use them as a, as a source anymore? And Breitbart is tra um, traditionally conservative leaning. So perhaps maybe they would just pivot to a, another conservative leaning source that you know, is known not to generate as many opinion pieces yeah. devoid of fact. I think that given time, Yes, the average person can um, look at an article and say this has merit or this doesn't have merit. Um, this, um, I, I think, I, like I said, I'm, I'm very positive about the faculties that average people have to discern fact from fiction, bullshit from not, if given time. The challenge is that they don't have time. There's so much news. You're just overwhelmed by it. It's everywhere. It's in your Facebook feed. It's in your Twitter feed. It's on WhatsApp. It's on email. It's just like constant and you never get away from it and so you don't have the time and you just resign you're like okay whatever it was in my feed i just read it and that i think is the crux of the problem is that you don't have the time to actually look at it and say yeah is this one really good or not and so i think tools like the factual really the biggest value we do is we clear out the junk we get rid of the junky articles and we show you the stuff that's left over which is actually pretty good from a wide, wide variety of sources, hundreds of sources every day. Um, and if you use a tool like ours, then yeah, I do think you can find uh, great writing, uh, even at places like Breitbart. Um, here's an example, by the way, on election night, I, was, uh, I watched Breitbart's coverage. Uh, so I had a, a few different pages, just wanted to see like, what are they gonna, right? And I was really pleasantly surprised that, you know, as allegations of voter fraud were coming in, uh, as you know, as counties and, and, and states were tilting towards Biden, uh, Breitbart featured both the allegations as well as repudiations in line with tweets from like really thoughtful people on Twitter 
who were whatever, liberal or conservative, but just really like, here's what they're saying, here's why it's not, here's all the evidence suggests it's not an issue, this is how, you know, it's like really good stuff. I was like, wow. Mm -hmm. They could have just as easily been like, this whole thing is cooked, you can't trust this election at all, it's, you know, stop the steal, all that stuff, but they didn't. They were surprisingly actually offering some good stuff. I'm not saying it's the best, but I was, it was not the worst, and it was actually good to see them showing that. So anyways, long-winded point to say, I do think people can can separate the good from the bad if they have time, but because they don't have time, then I would recommend a tool like the factual that makes it easy. Yeah, the not having time and then just being bombarded constantly, like you said, there is just so much information coming at people that they they, they don't even know how to, uh, I mean, I feel overwhelmed at some points and I've spent a very long time trying to figure out how to discern fact from fiction, you know, digging into logic, philosophy, using the scientific background to parse all this information out. But then the average person who doesn't have this prerequisite training, I, I, I can't even imagine. It's like trying to drink from a fire hose. Yeah. Uh, what, what I've been pleasantly surprised with is, you know, we have thousands of readers now and they write back all the time. They'll reply to the newsletter, they'll comment on our Facebook ads or our pages. And um, I mean, people from across the political spectrum, from across the states, we have readers in all 50 states and multiple countries, um, blue collar, white collar, rural, urban, like you name it, we've got it. They've been surprisingly thoughtful. They've called us out sometimes when we've had it wrong. And so maybe it's because I am an optimist, but I see that um, you don't need special training to understand the news. You don't have to be a statistician. You don't have to be news savvy or a power news person. Like if you have something like the factual as a guiding tool, and again, you're given the time to look at a few articles that are important, that have been really well researched from a few different viewpoints. I think a lot of people actually are like, that was useful. I, I understand that. I may still hold on to my views. I may believe the election is fraudulent or not, but at least I'm talking with a basis of fact with like, here's evidence that I've seen or heard. And this is where I saw, and I don't know what trust this, but I do like this, like, you know, it's versus just sort of like blanket, this is complete hogwash one way or the other. Um, so it's been, it's been surprisingly uh, encouraging that people from all walks of life are very capable of understanding the news and discerning good from bad. Uh, if given just a little bit of help and some tools. Well, that is fantastic news because I know that for the past four years, I've struggled a little bit to be optimistic myself, uh, just watching how people share news stories, uh, particularly on social media. And, you know, the, the bias that comes along with it as well. And like you said, I mean, we're all biased and we, we do our best to try to, I mean, if we care, to try to be to be unbiased um, and to actually get a good overall picture, but I know that at points it seems like it's just an uphill battle. Um, at least it has been for me, primarily interacting with people on social media. So I am very glad to hear that you are at least from uh, from your subscribers that they are finding value in it, and it appears as though they're able to. You know, get the good information that they so desire, because I, you know, I can't, you, I can't, I can't think of anything more important. Again, like going back to what I said earlier, than you know, when it comes to a society's social fabric and how you conduct yourselves, how people interact with one another, how we, uh, you know, we we can we conduct the marketplace, government. It's just so important to have good information. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I think is. Um, is a real surprise, but then if you, if you sit back, you, you won't be surprised, is social media is not representative of society at large. And you kind of know this if you think about it, but in everyday parlance, we might forget. So for example, you say things like, you know, I see the stories being shared on social. It's so disheartening. Why are they sharing that crazy stuff? Well, the stats on sharing, you're already talking about a very small fraction of the population. You know, First of all, most people might not know, but only about 10% of the population is on Twitter. Um, Facebook is a lot bigger, it's about 70%. But then the fraction that get news on those platforms, you already you know, cut down a bit. The fraction that shares news on those platforms, really down to a small fraction. 
So what ends up happening is you have this tiny, tiny fraction of the population that is sharing news. And somehow that's supposed to be representative of what we all think and, and read. It's nonsensical. It's not true at all. And, you know, one of the, the things is so we are the Factual's flagship product is the humble email newsletter. And I think it still blows people's minds like, wait, the newsletter, email? Are you kidding me? Why aren't you guys all on this social or that social? Turns out most people, that's actually the most accessible platform. Good old email. It just comes to my inbox. No login. There's no likes and tweets and hearts and, and replies and comments. Like it's just, it's simple. And so that was another big aha to me that um, the majority of people are not on these social platforms talking about news and getting their news from there. They get some. They definitely get some. But most people are like, that stuff is is not really very credible and they just want like good simple news that's credible it's informative it's useful and when we deliver it to them in a medium like email really old-fashioned stuff that's been around for 50 60 years they're like that works for me so that's where i think it's very easy to fall into the trap that twitter is representative of the population or arguably even what's shared on facebook is but it's not and if you get away from that I think it's easier to be optimistic that actually talk to normal people, just talk to them offline, talk to your friendly neighbors. Like you'll find out most of them are not that different than you. Some are going to be a bit crazy, but most, yeah, they're kind of the same as the rest of us. <laughs> no, absolutely. I think at the end of the day, you know, society is full of good people who are just trying to, you know, make their way through life. And, yeah. you know, when you sit down and talk with people, you know, most of us want very similar things. That's right. um, yeah, very similar things out of life. Uh, I am curious about the your comments about you know it's a small fraction on social media. I haven't looked at the demographics, but I'm assuming I'm assuming you have. Do you find that the younger generation? So I'm talking like ba uh, um, younger than the baby boomers. So particularly like the millennials and younger. Let's say, uh, are they getting the news more from online, like social media sources? online sources, so they, uh, versus, um, let's say, watching the news, um, you know, print, print news is, I think, something that's, that's going away. I don't know very many yeah. people in my generation, at least, still get, like, newspapers and things of that nature. That's more of a, uh, like, of the boomer generation. But yeah, you definitely see, sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, so I was going to say the, I think the majority of the consumption is definitely coming from online, but you're saying that it's not like social media sources, like they're actually going like maybe into search engines, search engines or something like that and then searching the news yeah. out that way or? It turns out that uh, news reading behavior is, um, is fairly multidimensional. So uh, yes, older demographics, for example, still get uh, a lot of their news from TV uh, and some even from print. And then as you skew younger, it tends to be more online. So that's a pretty good uh, sort of trend. But even in the younger generations that are online, it's sort of a multitude of sources. It's not just one social network or just getting everything from your you know, default Google News Feed or something like that. Um, a lot of times they do have a newsletter or two that they subscribe to. They've got a few websites that they like going to for news, uh, some aggregator websites, some community websites, maybe Reddit, what have you. Um, so there's a, a multitude of things. Every, very few people are like, I just swear by X source. Um, and, you know, that's one of the big shifts, I think, in consumer uh, news behavior is, you know, back maybe 30 years ago, people probably swore by one or two brands. It's like, I love New York Times. If it's on the Times, I trust her. I love the Wall Street Journal. And what you see in today's uh, younger generations is they very rarely swear by a brand. They'll say, I, I, I read the Times. I, I like, yeah, I read the Journal, I, but I read a lot of stuff. I read this, I read that. It's like, I read it all. Um, and so that, I think, is the biggest shift is that brand loyalty to a specific news outlet has gone down. Um, and I don't think that's going to go up dramatically. I think we're living in a world where there are going to be a lot of news sources. And that's a good thing. It goes back to the first point I said, you do need to read more than one source. And so it's good that we have uh, a multitude of sources out there. In fact, maybe the craziest thing that I tell people, you know, everyone complains about the news. Oh my God, the news is so trash these days. It's such a, uh, it's so hopeless and horrible. Uh, fake news, et cetera. And then my response is, uh, we're actually in the golden age of journalism. And people are like, what? Come again? Are you, are you crazy? I'm like, actually, no. This, there is phenomenal writing today. 
deeply researched by expert journalists, showcasing a wide range of angles that you would never have had 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, the way that journalists can hold power accountable today, unheard of compared to 30, 40 years ago. But it's lost amidst the ginormous amount of mediocre news writing that's out there. Um, and so to me, this is a search problem. There's great writing and great journalism out there across the political spectrum, but it's hard to find. And our job is to help find that. And when you do, then you have, you know, you, you actually find value. And so my hope is that these younger generations, because they're sort of trained to read a lot of sources, just almost by default, not necessarily good sources, but their default sort of reading a lot of things because of social, because of these, that they sort of become the best news consumers ever. They're like, I don't swear by any brand. I read a lot of things, but I'm a very smart consumer about it. And I know now how to find like good sources and good information. Um, that might be a little too optimistic on my part, but that's what I hope for. Well, I mean, I'm hopeful as well that, you know, particularly since 2016, that people are realizing the value in reading multiple sources. And I don't know if this is a, re you know, the, the brand loyalty comment that you made. I don't know if that is a recent phenomenon where people are not are choosing to diversify more versus just subscribing to like one or two primary brands mm -hmm. when it comes to consumption of information. But I definitely agree with you that it's a great thing. Uh, I can't, you know, similar to having, like, say, like a diversified investment portfolio. <laughs> yeah. You should have a diversified information portfolio where you are getting all of your uh, news across a variety of sources. And I think that that's a, I agree with you. I think that that's a wonderful trend. And I'm curious if you think that perhaps it started or maybe, maybe it didn't, but uh, let's say, you know, when it comes to the distrust, uh, talking about distrust in mainstream media, if you will, the MSM or media in general, do you think that this distrust was a, like a galvanizing force to encourage people to like maybe step outside a little bit of their comfort zone and say, hey, I need to start diversifying the sources that I listen to uh, just because I don't know if this, you know, I, I I normally listen to these people over here on the left, but you know, you know, I caught them telling a lie and that really hurt their credibility in my opinion. So perhaps I should look at a different view, uh, excuse me, a different news source over here. But you know, I don't really know if they're always going to be telling the truth. They haven't really lied or presented me with false information at this point, but you know, just to be safe, I'm gonna go look over here now. Yeah, so you know the data says 86% uh, of Americans think the news is either very biased or uh, completely biased or something like that. I think that was the survey okay. back in August. So basically, you know, the vast, vast majority of people think uh, outlets are biased. And so I, I think it's important to make the distinction between bias and false. And I think most news sources tend not to print outright falsehoods. That's rarer than people might think. What tends to happen more is that news sources are guilty of framing a story a certain way and leaving certain facts out to lead to a certain conclusion or to make a certain point. Um, and that I think is the bigger problem. And the way to solve that, like I said, is to you know, find better journalists who write really well researched and, and are not so opinionated and then to read a few of those across the political spectrum. Um, so I don't think uh, over the last few years, people sort of came to the conclusion that, you know, oh my God, the New York Times, they, they've lied or they're total liars or uh, they've printed so many falsehoods and been caught lying. I don't think it's quite that. But I think if you read something like the Times, you can start to see that there's clearly a way they frame stories that is a liberal sort of viewpoint. And I'm okay with it. Like once you accept that that's just how they are, that's fine. I still think they're a great newspaper, but they're not the be all and end all. And I wouldn't say I'd get all my news from them. Uh, so I do think that people have woken up to this fact of bias uh, that they maybe pre 2016 uh, did not think so much of. Actually 2016 was a very galvanizing year um, because of uh, Donald Trump winning the election. Both people that wanted him, uh, that wanted Hillary to win and people that didn't want her to win were surprised. They were like, wait a minute, everything I read said Hillary was gonna win. No one was thinking Donald Trump was gonna win. 
And so what happened is people realized that the sources they were getting news from were just not uh, giving them the whole story anymore. They were not telling you everything that was going on. And so they realized, okay, I don't know if I can trust my favorite sources as much anymore to give me the whole story. And then, you know, other events, Brexit happened. So same sort of realization in the UK, another big surprise. And then COVID really taught people that, oh my God, like this has become a matter of life and death. You need to have credible information that isn't slanted a certain way. It's not trying to alarm you. It's also not trying to placate you. It's just trying to give you the facts. I think 2016, 2020 were like the big years where everyone's like, this is a big deal. I need to get credible news now. And I'm not going to just trust any one source. Not because I think they're false. I just don't think they're going to give me everything. I think that's the conclusion. Yeah, I guess that's a really important distinction that there's not so much of the outright lying, but how they frame, frame the facts or leaving facts out in order to perpetuate a narrative, um, something that they, that they want uh, the reader to take away from um, reading whatever it is that they wrote in order to push them down a, you know, towards a, a certain conclusion. Right. I mean, it does happen, I guess, the lying, and then they have to you know, walk it back. Uh, perhaps they use sources that couldn't be verified. Um, I, That's I right. Have seen, I have seen some of that since 2016 with sources, actually, yeah, with, uh, with news outlets that I would expect more of. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that really hurts their reputation, even if it only happens once, you know, once a decade. Yeah, <laughs> Still. it definitely, I mean, you know, if you look at any publication, uh, I, I suspect most publications have inadvertently printed a falsehood somewhere. Um, and most of them are pretty good about accepting like, hey, we screwed up. Shouldn't have trusted that source. We thought we double checked, triple checked. We got it wrong. I mean, the Times got it wrong a few weeks ago on this ISIS podcast that we're doing. And one of their journalists admitted, she's like, I screwed up. Like, I thought the source I had was good and he wasn't. Um, I think most uh, news outlets do try to do the right thing and do accept their mistakes and correct for them when they get it wrong. So that's all part of the process. Again, I think part of what we have to do is, you know, I don't know, there was this viewpoint, and even I had it before, that you just trust the news. Like what you get, like it's good, you should just read it. And the reality is the news has always been um, something that you should read with critical thinking skill. The news is not just, I, I don't know, it's not entertainment fodder. Like you have to use your brain uh, in deciphering it. Historically, the news has actually always been very partisan. It's a relatively recent phenomenon that news even tries to be nonpartisan and, and objective. Like, you know, through the 60s, I think, uh, you sort of knew certain publications were one way or the other. Just knew my, I don't know, your parents and my parents used to have two newspapers come on the doorstep every day. And I was like, dad, why do you get two? He's like, because you never trust one, duh. <laughs> You've got to read two. So he just, like, everyone sort of knew that. And somewhere along the line, we forgot this thing. And we're just mm -hmm. like, well, I read it in the papers. It must be true. No, no, no. You need to use your active thinking and say, wait, what are they missing? What's being left out? And the better our society gets at reading the news and asking those kinds of questions and using our critical thinking skills, the better we are as a society, right? That's when we're using our brains for what we're good at. Um, so again, my hope is that this whole series of the, the last few years where trust in the media has gotten to a, a low point by itself is not a problem if what ends up coming out of it is that we all start to be better judges of what is credible information. And we look and we're like, who is this author? What are their facts? What have they written on before? Have they always been saying this? Did they change their tune? What are other outlets saying? How come no one else is saying this? You know, like, Get into that habit of asking those questions. That's an awesome community to be part of. That's a better society that we're building. I couldn't agree more. And what you just said there, uh, you know, makes me excited I, a bit for the future. You know, if we, if everyone gets on board with that and is like, yes, this is what we're going to do. Uh, and wonderful platforms like The Factual, uh, and other people who are working to solve this problem, some that type of future definitely gets me excited. And I am hoping that society is shifting a little bit. Um, and the fact that you have thousands of subscribers in every, uh, you know, across the United States gives me hope. 
but yeah, I'm. Uh, you have made me a little bit more optimistic. I suppose coming into this conversation, Arjun, I was uh, a little bit more uh, pessimistic about the state of the environment in the United States. But after talking to you for a little bit, I suppose you have ticked my needle over a little bit more towards optimism. So I'm oh, definitely good. excited to see. Yeah, I'm definitely excited to see uh, what the uh, what the future holds in that regard. Anyway, you know, when it comes to making making society better uh, and good, the value of good information, one thing I think that we can all agree upon is that society appears to be very polarized at the moment. And I'm curious as to if you think that it was the news that helped to polarize the United States or if it was the fact that the news kind of followed and maybe made it a little bit worse and we were kind of already on this trajectory of polarization. Uh, I'm just curious as to what your thoughts are on the current state of polarization in the United States. Um, there's definitely research that has showed that polarization has increased over the last 25 years. Uh, so that seems fairly uh, not, uh, or not controversial. As to what is driving it, I think that's a very tough question to answer. You're a scientist, you know, you know, causality. I mean, there must be so many factors. I don't know how you would separate all the factors. Um, but if I had to venture a guess, I would say that news is a driving factor. I don't know how much of a factor, but I think it's a driving factor. And my hypothesis is that what has happened over the last 25 years is that the cost of producing news uh, insofar as writing something has come down with the internet and you've got lots more sources that are publishing news or opinion columns or what have you. And um, because most of them are competing for attention because they're ad-based, they have uh, gravitated to more sensationalist headlines, more headlines that are outrageous because they know that's what gets people to come back. Rage, rage works. Um, and that's been an you know that's been an accusation of news for decades, but I think it became particularly intense in the internet era where your competition is just a click away. It's not a subscription you have to go by. You just click and oh my god, did you see that? Or it's all in your feed. So I do think the news has gotten more and more partisan and sensational uh, in order to capture attention. And then I think there's a bit of a feedback loop. You start to do that more. People start to read it. They're like. Like, did you see this? I mean, it's crazy. How could they do this? How could they do that? Um, and so I do think that the news media has some responsibility towards how uh, our society has increasingly polarized. I don't think it's everything, though. I think um, there's, there's incentives that make us solve for the short term instead of long term, uh, right from politicians on down. So we tend to say things sometimes that gives us short-term rewards, which tend to be more inflammatory comments, incendiary comments, might win you an election. Uh, if you say that, may not keep you for very long, but you'll, you'll win that election maybe. Um, so I do see that kind of behavior uh, as well. You know, the, the way I'd say it is if news is done well, most of the time it's rather boring. It's really not that interesting if you do news well. It's like, ah, this happened, here's the facts just not that exciting, but that doesn't sell, right? If you're, if you're in the attention game. So yeah, uh, I long went away of saying, I do think the news is responsible for polarization. I don't know how much of a factor, but I'd say they're a factor. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that it has played a role. And like you said earlier, it's probably a confluence of factors that have played into polarization. You know, perhaps the way you know, politicians conduct themselves on Capitol Hill, uh, may have played into national polarization and other factors as well, but I definitely think that the news has exacerbated it. Um, and we have been on a trajectory of increased polarization, and I am just hoping, I am really, really hoping that perhaps this year, starting this year, 2021, that we can begin to heal that divide. Uh, because my fear is that too much of it uh, will eventually cause the nation to kind of pull itself apart. Yeah. You and, know, one of the things that gives me hope, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, Jonathan. Um, yeah, no worries. If you look mm -hmm. at people in this last general election and how they voted, it's, it's tempting to look at how could you vote for him 
and brand everything you hate about that person uh, as uh, a trait of their voter. Like if you voted for so-and-so, you must believe in this. You must stand for this. You're such a horrible indie. That's, don't blame that on the news. That's, that's on us. And we have to get better at saying, you can vote for X, and I may disagree with that X, but that doesn't mean you and I don't have stuff in common. You might have, you know, a lot of times when we vote for someone, we agree with parts of their platform, we disagree with other parts of their platform. It's very rare that you're like, I voted for that person, I agree with 100% of what they say. I think they're, you know, manna from heaven. I don't think that most of us vote that way. And so if we can start to understand that there's shades of gray, the parts that we agree with and disagree with, then you don't have to look at people that vote differently or think differently than you and see them as diametrically opposed. You can find common ground with most people. Like you said, if we just sit down and chit chat with our neighbors, you'll find there's a lot in common. We just kind of want the same things. So part of what I hope is that we reverse the polarization trend because we have better conversations with people in real life sometimes. We uh, get away from posturing, virtue signaling, showing off, just have regular conversations with people. Um, and understand most of us are kind of trying to do the same thing. Uh, yeah, I feel like you, you, you come away with a very different viewpoint of the world if you meet people and talk to them in real life. Um, by the way, speaking of the total random, there's this uh, young lady, her name is Alice Thwaite, and she has this uh, organization called the Echo Chamber Club. And she came to that conclusion. She said, you know, if you want to help people break out of their bubble, you got to have them talk to other people in person. And that really helps. And she leads these uh, meetings. I presume most of it's pre-COVID now, but that gets people together with different political viewpoints and they chit chat. And she says it's actually pretty good. So those are the kinds of things that I think that really help break down polarization. You know, that's funny that you said that, <clears throat> you know, forming uh, relationship with people and that helps to get them out of their bubbles. Uh, I, from my own observation that, you know, people who are very, very far down a certain path, let's say, the only way to perhaps open them up a little bit, besides just remaining calm and having that conversation is to spend the time to actually form a relationship with them. A very long time if you need to. I mean, it, I suppose it depends. Uh, it depends on how serious you are about changing their mind, but there is definitely a relationship component to actually getting through and really communicating with somebody. So for example, are you familiar, familiar with uh, like Daryl Davis? Um, he did no. like a TED talk or I believe that's his name. Anyway, he's a gentleman who decided that he was going to, he's, a, he's an African-American and he mm -hmm. decided that he really wanted to learn more about the kind of like the white supremacist movement, in particular, oh. the, the Ku Klux Klan. Uh -huh. So what he did was he befriended Ku Klux Klan members. Uh -huh. And for some reason, they decided to you know, sit down, uh, a number of them, he was able to convince them to sit hmm. down. They started chatting, eventually a relationship, a friendship uh, blossomed out of it. And he has these Klan members at some point then leave the Klan uh, just because they formed a relationship with him, a uh, African-American. So they, he has a collection wow. of, he now has a collection of maybe not hundreds, but I mean, more than 10, uh, quite, quite a number of clan robes because it's individuals that he has convinced to leave the, uh, leave the organization, to leave the, the KKK. That's really cool, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just looking it up right now. Very interesting. I'm definitely going to watch that. Um, yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's part of it. Like if we sort of meet real people in real life that are from all walks of life, you sort of take away the mystery, the fear, the, the ideas that you have about those people. And you meet them and you're like, oh, actually, they're not that bad. They're not that different from us. They're kind of cool. I like them. Um, I could see myself being friends with them. And then, you know, all that other stuff just washes away. So I think that's really, that's a great parable. I need to read the, I need to listen to Daryl Davis's TED Talk. That's a great suggestion. Yeah, and another thing too that uh, is in the same area is something known as deep canvassing that's used in politics, where 
people that are trying to, like you've heard of canvassing, people that go out into neighborhoods and try to convince people mm -hmm. to vote for whatever political party that they're representing. But there's something known as deep canvassing, which is where you actually go out and you like form deeper connections with people. Because it's really at that point that you can begin to change somebody's mind. Uh, and this is something that, you know, when you talk about just presenting people with like facts and having shallow relationships with them, this is something that happens in the scientific community. Uh, when it comes mm -hmm. to like pseudoscience, you'll have people like anti-vaccine advocates, um, global warming denialists, et cetera. And something that we always talk about is how exactly do you reach these people? Uh, because there's been plenty of research done and just presenting facts doesn't really do it. It's these people are very entrenched in their worldview. It would cause them great pain to have to give it up. They probably have an entire um, social group it's been formed around this particular ideology, even though that it doesn't represent reality, but it's still been formed around it. So how exactly do you go in when this person is so invested in this image? And one of the ideas that has been shown to work is the forming of this relationship. So I think that, you know, again, like just going out, you know, we're talking about having conversations when it comes to the news and Know, connecting with the community, things of that nature, uh, that's really, really important, I think, on any level, when it just comes to trying to understand uh, understand each other, right? I mean, like you said at the beginning, everyone has bias. I have bias, you have bias, <laughs> you know, my friends and family have bias. While I think that I'm going to be right all the time, I it's so important for me, not just me, but everybody, you know, to get out there, have conversations with people, you know, have your have your worldview challenge. Hey, it's okay. It's okay if you're wrong. Nobody can be right all the time. Uh, yeah. Type of deal. So. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, yeah. It, it, by the way, there's this uh, group on Reddit. Uh, oh, by the way, Jonathan, I have to go really, really soon. I'm sorry. Um, no worries. Um, do you have five minutes? Yeah, we'll do five minutes. Um, okay. Uh, there's a uh, there's a subreddit on Reddit called Change My View. Yes. Yes. Change my view. Yeah, that's a yeah. fantastic subreddit. And I love some, you know, CMV is just like, that's like a useful tool. You see a lot Absolutely. of people put forth very thoughtful arguments to help convince someone of something else. Um, I, I like that one. Uh, the other one, uh, there's not a good example of it, but it's almost what Daryl Davis was doing, which is, um, you know, seek, uh, there's a it's, a, it's a line from an old Christian prayer, I think. It says, um, seek to understand rather than be understood. And I think that's a little bit of what Daryl Davis is doing, where he's like, he doesn't go in saying, I'm here to change your mind about black people. He's like, I'm here to listen and find out what you're all about. I'm curious what's going on here. And if you're really curious about the other party, then over time, they also become curious about you. So if you meet an anti-vaxxer or climate science uh, denialist, rather than going saying, I'm gonna change your mind on this, um, you can say, I'm actually really fascinated. How, where are you getting these views? Like, what is your, basis for this and you ask questions and ask questions and maybe you'll be surprised maybe your views are not very strong or maybe as you ask questions their own views sort of water down a bit but that's a better approach if you seek to understand rather than go in and saying i want to change your mind so i think they're they're very interesting you know change my view is is one approach in in reddit which i find entertaining and just useful another version is the daryl davis version I'm, I'm i'm hypothesizing which is just tell me why you think this and then go from there. Absolutely. And I think that's a great point to stop, Arjun. So for those who are tuning in, listening to the episode, watching it, where exactly can they learn more about the factual? So there's a website, there's some social media perhaps. Yeah, uh, best thing to do is to go to thefactual.com and sign up for the newsletter. Like I said, that's really the simplest, easiest thing to do. Um, and as part of that, you'll get into a two-week trial for free. You'll see everything that we have, and then afterwards, uh, you can either opt for the free plan or the paid plan. Uh, we have an app that we'll announce in a few days. There's a website as well that's linked, but it all just starts with the newsletter, so just sign up for the newsletter. Best thing you can do and, and go from there. All right, fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much for joining. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. And for those who are tuning in, definitely make sure to Go ahead, subscribe, hit that like button, share it on social media with your friends. I can't think of anything more important these days than having good un unbiased news information.
in order to help direct your worldview. You know, one of the things I always talk on this particular show and on articles with intelligent speculation is the importance of having good information because the information that you take in from the world around you, uh, that's how you form arguments. And these arguments that you tell yourselves, these are the decisions and it's important if you're to make good decisions that you have good information in order to do that. So anyway, take care. Thank you so much for stopping by and until next time.